Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Today we have president, founder, and CEO of Emotiva Audio, Dan Hoffman. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here, Jordan. I'm excited to get started. Um, I've read up a little bit about you in different interviews and, and articles. And I guess one thing that don't, I didn't... Don't believe what you've read. <laughs> well, the, you're here for the truth, right? Now we're, now we're getting the uh, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, what I'm curious about is how did you originally kind of get into to audio? How did you originally get into hi-fi? Well, that's a long and convoluted path, but I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version of it. I'm showing my age because young people don't know what Reader's Digest is. Uh, I'll, I'll summarize. So when I was a kid, uh, my dad was an amateur musician and music nut. And my dad uh, would build for, for as a hobby he built hi-fi gear in our garage. And so uh, I was a little boy. I was probably six, seven, eight years old. And my dad was building a big tube amplifier, Williamson tube amps, his own phono preamp. And he built a big Carlson, which was a horn-loaded speaker enclosure. And it was made out of plywood and it was in our living room in La Mirada. And uh, my dad would play big band music in it. And, uh, you know, he'd get it cranked and I'd have a couple martinis and turn it up. And, you know, I would just, I, I remember dancing around in front of the speaker because it was so exciting, you know. And uh, I would sit inside, if you've seen the, the Carlson speaker enclosure, it's a 12-inch a woofer, like a coaxial with a big, like a curved opening. And I would sit in the bottom of the bin, as it were, and just, you know, the, 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 the vibration and the, the excitement of the music. It just got me hooked on it. And then I was an inveterate uh, tankerer since I was like, taking things apart all the time. And then my dad had, a, you know, had test equipment and soldering irons and all the stuff in the, in the garage building stuff. So I would, you know, constantly get in there and break things and, solder things together. My, my dad would take me to work and I would just, uh, he had a little company called SKG. He said it stood for sick him, kick him and gore him, but I don't know if that's really <laughs> what I meant. I think that's what they like to call it. But, um, I would sit there and solder resistors together. My dad would just, you know, uh, get busy. He'd go in on a Saturday or something and just go, here's a bunch of parts, go play with them. And I learned how to solder and stuff. So I've always been, uh, and, and I guess I'm taking too long to say, but I've always been fascinated by electronics and, and music and machinery in general. And that's just been, that's been my thing. But I really got turned on to, to hi-fi unknowingly. I didn't know what hi-fi was at that age, but I loved music and I loved, uh, I loved, the, I liked the equipment, you know, the tubes and the turntable. And he had a big old brown Gerard turntable with a change, you know, the records would drop. And I just liked, I loved all that stuff, you know? So that's kind of what gave me the bug, I guess, really early on. That's, that's awesome. Now, my understanding is that you, uh, before starting Emotiva, you are also in the OEM, ODM kind of manufacturing space for, I guess, microprocessors or processors or electronics or, or something all of the above. Well, yeah, I, I mean, through my whole checkered career, I have been building electronics 
uh, or been involved in audio or manufacturing or uh, design and development and manufacturing for uh, various products and various entities uh, since I was a young guy. So, uh, you know, my buddy Eric and I, we would we had a little company called Electroacoustics. We ran out PAs and we would do any kind of project anybody would give us that we could make a buck. And uh, but mostly focused on audio. And then as I got older, I evolved a little bit of live sound and and, uh, you know, a relatively short lived uh, touring career because I realized there's no money in it, you know, and I was a frustrated, bad musician and there was zero money in that, even less money than that. <laughs> But I, I gravitated towards manufacturing because uh, people always, always asked me to make things and I would I was pretty good at it. And I started my first little audio company in my 20s uh, as a side as like a hobby when I lived down in the South Bay of Southern California. And I built my first car audio stuff back then. And I worked for an acoustical consulting firm at the time. And and I ended up building a lot of noise masking systems for them that we built a proprietary noise masking system that my buddy and I designed and we manufactured it all in Torrance and that kind of gave me the manufacturing bug. And I, uh, so I, 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 I really liked doing that. And then I had this idea for a, a high performance car audio system. So I started working on that on the side and then that led into a little company that, that, uh, that was called Wolof Research. You know, it was a lot of fun, but it didn't make any money, but we learned a lot in it and I lived down on the beach and, you know, we'd, we'd build electronics in the garage and, and speakers, and then we'd go down and body surf and, you know, have barbecues and, you know, and then, you know, go back and do it again. It's just a madhouse. It was like a frat house, really. But that little company ended up being uh, the, the genesis of, a, of an OEM business uh, that I ended up selling, uh, building car audio and other electronics. And I was working for an Infinity and Pile and Concord and other brands like that. And Harman ended up buying uh, our company. You know, Harman, not the, the, not the megalith that uh, Harman is now, but Harman International, uh, when Sidney Harman was still there, they ended up uh, buying all of my customers. And I was really good friends with all the guys at, at Harman, mostly Infinity, via Infinity, who I did a lot of work for. And uh, they just called me up one day and said, hey, you know, you're essentially working for us, you know, we own all your, your customers, <laughs> Let, let's just make it official. So uh, they bought our company in a very happy marriage. And I ended up working at Harman Motive, which was their, their new automotive division, which is now the biggest part of the company uh, in terms of volume and revenue, the OEM uh, branded car audio business, you know, and, and, and uh, Harman Becker and all that, and all, they own all the brands, you know, that's all turned into a, a giant industry that that's why Samsung bought the company is because there's so much value in that. But um, so I was involved in that and I did that for three or four years and I learned a lot working at Harman. And uh, and then I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I had the bug again. So I left there. I had to sit out my non-compete and I ran a sporting goods company, a manufacturing company in L.A., building lawn chairs and cots and canopies and you know, all kinds of stuff. It was a fun aluminum fabrication business. It was actually really cool. And I learned a lot there, ironically, about, you know, metal, you know, yeah. and, uh, and you know, I automated that factory and brought in computers and computerized bending machines. And, and they were like, it was like going to the 1940s. It was a fun experience. So I, I kind of wild away my non-compete, uh, with Harman. And then I started another little manufacturing company building, uh, audio gear. And, um, and that, that was Emotiva. 
No, no, I'm still not there yet. No? Uh, I'm okay. an old guy. I've got a, I got a lot of long history. Then I sold that company. I built that company up and ended up getting uh, through a, a wild series of events. Uh, it got bought. Uh, I, I won't go through all of the sordid details, but I was building products, getting customers, and ended up building up this little business that uh, that ended up through a very unhappy marriage getting bought by Recaton Corporation, as we called them, Recalife. And... Um, <laughs> That was an unhappy marriage and an unwanted marriage, but um, it was a, a convoluted story. That's a whole nother podcast. But I ended up um, working for them for a short period of time. They, the company was in financial disarray. They ended up letting me out of my contract. After ruining my life, they let me go and bought out my contract. And then I was a free agent. And in the course of all that, I met a guy who owned a company, a Taiwanese guy, uh, who owned a company in China, and he needed help with OEM business in uh, in the U.S. And I knew the OEM business very well from my experience in all these little entities of mine. I knew where all the bodies were buried because I'd built a lot of, com- of product for different companies in this OEM business. And I ended up uh, going to work for him and then ultimately becoming a partner in that company. And that was a big, turned out to be a really successful OEM company. And uh, we were building for everybody, including Harmon again, ironically. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, all these guys that were my old customers became uh, uh, they became my new customers again under uh, under this other entity. And um, while I was doing that, we had great success with this. It was really a, it was a remarkable decade or, to, or so of growth and learning. And I started now I'll get to Emotiva finally. Yeah. I started Emotiva as a hobby and uh, I just wanted to always have another brand. I had a little short-lived thing with Wolof Research when I was a kid in my 20s. And I said, man, I really want to have my own little thing that because I was building for other people. And I really had strong ideas about what products should be like and be how it should be priced and go to market. And I, I started Emotiva kind of as a therapy thing just to as a creative release, I guess. Is that is that the best way to put it? Yeah. And uh, I I just fiddled around. So I, and I love surround sound. I got really hooked on surround sound early on. And um, I was w- working with Bob Carver and we were building the, the theater grand cinema processors. And I really got the fever bad over there. And I ended up licensing and co-developing and building uh, the cinema grand processor with Bob. And um, we worked at it because I ended up doing a lot of work with Bob and 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 part of it uh, gave me access to that platform because I helped uh, defray the development costs and assist them with getting it done and building a lot of other Sunfire stuff. And uh, that was my first that was the basis of the first Emotiva processor It was based on the Sunfire platform, the TG4. And um, and we obviously modified it heavily, but that was the, the core decoding engine on it. And then um, one thing led to another and my partner and I decided to part ways. Uh, you know, uh, we, it, we it, it's one of those things when you have nothing, everybody gets along great. When you have great success, everybody starts fighting over the spoils of your success, which is ironic because when you had nothing, you know, you're all aligned. And as soon as you start making a lot of money, which we were, uh, all these other tensions start uh, going around. And my, my partner led his son in the business and, you know, he, he couldn't figure out what this, you know, this old fat guy was doing in the company, you know, and, and making all that money. And he didn't think that was right. So we, there was a lot of tension. So they just, we ended up 
parting as friends. They bought me out and I, I was about done living in airplanes and traveling all the time. And I had this idea for Emotiva and I just came home from China and told my wife and Lonnie and all the guys, I said, we're going to start, we're going to turn Emotiva into a business. That's, the, that's our next chapter. And uh, so that was 20 years ago this month that that happened. Oh, no way. Okay. Yeah. I'm old. So you know, that, I've been around a while. And, and so that was 2003. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all the manufacturing up into then, that was like the 80s and 90s. Yeah, the 70s, 80s, 90s. Sorry, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah, I'm old. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've been doing this a long time, yeah. So I, I think what's fascinating about that, um, there, there's a lot. And like, especially in, in terms of uh, what I was reading about your company and your philosophy and all that, you were around a lot of the manufacturing. You saw a lot of the markups of these different companies. Um, what what inspired you to to start Emotiva as a company that is more accessible. Like you, you had the ability to one, just buy the most expensive sound systems and everything out there if you wanted to. And I've done it. Yeah. And I've, I've been involved in it. Look at when I was a kid, the most enjoyable part of my life, I had no money growing up. You know, my parents divorced when I was pretty young and I went from living a pretty middle, middle-class life to being, you know, not, we weren't poor. We never just missed a meal, but we didn't have any money. You know, I mean, it was just, you, you just, you were, I was always hustling, trying to do stuff to, to, to make money. And, uh, which is why I was always building stuff. Cause I could make money doing that. And then, you know, it was like, I found a, something I could, people would pay me for, uh, for doing things. So I was always doing oddball stuff, putting phone systems in people's houses, building things for them. I mean, I was always hustling and, um, but I loved hi-fi, but I had no money. So, you know, you were always looking for products that were sleepers that 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 hit way beyond their price point right yeah. so if you remember remember when the the old ar1 turntable you know it was a really modest simple turntable a really basic turntable but it was really well made and it sounded fantastic right yeah. so that was my first real turntable man i had other turntables but my real first high well quote high-end turntable was an ar turntable and then you get in and you modify it and you fiddle with it and you do that you know you're always diddling with it you know and um, and then, you know, phase linear amplifiers were a breakthrough in terms of power for performance, but they didn't sound very good. So what do you do? You go in there and you start fiddling with them and you put faster output devices in and you get rid of all the stupid VI limiting that compressed uh, their current delivery capabilities. But then they run hotter than a toaster. So you got to put <laughs> cooling on them and you do. And so I was constantly diddling around and building speakers from scratch. And, you know, I, I just was a. a Always looking to get high-end performance, but I didn't have any money. And I used to love Heathkit and Dynaco and Hafler, all these original brands that were, were made for the hobbyist. And they were, they'd let you build your own gear to keep the price down, right? Yeah. And make it accessible to people. So when I, I was building all this high-end product for other companies as a factory, and I was looking at the markups between what we charge them for the product and then they would grind us and grind us and grind us on price over everything. And then I looked at the retail price and sometimes it was 10 times what we charged for the product, right? We were doing the engineering, the development, the production, everything for it. You know, half the time we did 99% of the product development. They'd say, we'll put our logo on this side. And so that's it. But we were doing the entire product and we were working on, you know, maybe 10 points if we were lucky, Jeez. right? 
And then they were turning around and they would buy something from me for a hundred dollars. And literally some of that stuff was going for a grand at retail because of all the markups and, and, and cost increases, right? You go, so distribution very and yeah, 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 everything, yeah, yeah. And then, everything. And then just greed too, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> Look at it. It's, and I'm a, and you know, I'm, I'm a capitalist, but I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a pig. That is, I want to make money and make money, but I'm not, I don't want to be a hog and get led to slaughter. You know, I want to be a pig and root around there and eat, eat, uh, eat, you know, stuff in the ground and uh, go look for truffles, but I don't want to be slaughtered. So what you do is you don't get greedy. You survive, you make a good profit, a fair profit, but you don't try to, to, you know, you don't try to take advantage of the market. And um, so I saw a lot of, of, of what I would call opportunistic pricing in my experience as a builder for others. And I said, you know, if I ever have an opportunity to do this on my own, I'm going to upend that model and I'm going to I'm going to go have a very nominal markup. Uh, a good market, but one that we can live with and make money and grow and be stable with. But I'm not going to price to market. I'm going to I'm going to have a formula and that's what I'm going to mark up. It doesn't matter what I think I can sell it for. I'm going to use this formula so that anybody can open my product and say, oh, Emotiva, that sells for one hundred dollars. Jeepers, they got 50 bucks in there. Yeah. Right. You have to make profit. Anybody that says they're not making profits lying to you. But I want to see a direct correlation between what it sells for versus what's in the box, what it costs to build. And another thing that we don't do that a lot of other companies do, and I'm, I'm jumping around a little bit here, nice. but um, we don't amortize our development and our engineering and our tooling into the product price. I oh, run, interesting. So a lot of companies, they say, oh, we spent a million dollars on development and we're going to sell 10,000 this year, 10,000 divided by a million. We got to add that to the product price. I don't do that. Okay. What I do is I say R&D and development and engineering and tooling are part of my overhead expenses, yeah. my expenses. Okay. A variable sales expenses or, yeah. but I, I, the product cost, the, 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 what it costs to build the product and put it in a box without any of those other expenses is what I'm, is what my markup is based on. So they end up becoming very competitive and I've, I've kind of jumped from uh, my original uh, point about the brand uh, but that's why we're so competitive. We've taken all of the fat out of the distribution model. Um, we, we don't have dealers. Uh, we have a few distributors internationally because they're a number of guys that I like a lot. And I don't, I'm not, I, uh, even though I'm a capitalist, I'm not driven by, I don't, I'm not concerned about uh, money in the same way that some people are. I want to, you have to make money to be in business, but sometimes a good partner and that you make a little less with is way better than uh, you know making a lot of money with a bad partner. So like we have a few distributors. We have a great Poland distributor, Polish distributor. We've got a great guy in in Karma and in England. We've got a great distributor in India. And those guys, they handle that market better than I can. And I don't need to make that much money on them to to have it be good business. And it's incremental to our main business. And so we're direct wherever we can be direct reasonably and responsibly. But if I find a good distributor in a territory that works, you know, I let them make more money. I mean, I don't, I don't really care. But if you look at the traditional um, AV market, okay, I'll give you a little education on how this works. Yeah. If I buy a product, I build a product for $100. Okay, that's my factory cost. 
Now, some companies will amortize their engineering and their tooling and their and their R&D into it. But let's just say that all in is 100 bucks. All right. Now, most brands need to make six or seven X cost to retail uh, to cover the distribution costs. So what they want to end up doing is making three X. If it costs $100, they want to end up with 300 bucks in their pocket. You know, sure. that's kind of the rule of thumb. Some companies want to make 4X or, you know, it, it depends. You know, luxury brands, it's much higher. Clothing and things of that, it's much, much higher. But, but for, for electronics, it, it's really, if it costs 100 bucks, it's going to retail for $700, you know, sure. maybe six, but usually seven. Because the distributor, if you want double. Well, I I sell it. Let's say I need to make, uh, you know, um, my mark. So I'm going to sell it to the the distributor. The distributor has got to make 20 to 25 points for being the distributor. And then he's going to sell it to a dealer who wants to make at least 40 to 50 points. If it's loudspeakers, it's even higher. Right. So it's really easy to see that you add all these multipliers onto that hundred dollar cost. And all of a sudden it just gets out of control. Whereas. My company, it's if it costs a hundred bucks, it's going to sell for probably two ninety nine, right? Yeah. But remember, I've got all my R and D, my overhead, my support, my shipping, my returns, my advertising. Everything is in there. It's it's baked in, and it never works out. I never quite make what I want to make. It's usually less. But the point is, is that it's a really simple system, and it keeps the pricing very very competitive. And we just take all of the fat out of there that we possibly can. And you have to make a certain markup or you can't stay in business because you've got, you know, our company, we have, uh, we own our own buildings. We have yeah, employees. Yeah, yeah. Well, and everything. all of our employees have medical insurance and dental insurance and vision. I mean, we run a real business, right? And and we, we pay taxes and we, you know, we, we, so we're not running it in a garage, you know, and we're not just buying stuff from China and sending it via China Post to the U.S. with no safety certifications or, I mean, yeah, it, you look at all the stuff that's being sold on eBay and all this stuff, all these uh, DAX and all these products straight from China. Well, that's a, that's the biggest racket in the world because they don't have to have any safety or compliance issues. They don't, they don't, they don't, they're not qualified in terms of that. You know, they just build them in China. If it's under a grand, they don't have to pay duty. They yeah. get an exemption, right? Anything I sell, if I bring something in from Asia, I have to pay tariffs and duty on it, right? But there's a special carve out under a grand that you can bring stuff in direct from China. And then believe it or not, the Chinese government subsidizes the postage rates and then the U.S. has a subsidy deal on U.S. postage rates. So they can fly this stuff in, you know, on this on this postal service and the U.S. subsidizes it too and there's no tariffs. So, yeah, it's a great racket It's a, and no duties. It's, it's a really nice little thing. So that's why you see all the stuff that's like under a grand coming in from China. It's a really good gig for them right now. That is absolutely fascinating. Now, we're going to take a quick little break. And then after that, there's a few other kind of lines of questioning that I want to get into. So stay tuned for just a moment and we'll be right back.
and welcome back from the break. We are here with Dan Lofman uh, from Emotiva. Um, just before the break, we were talking about uh, the kind of China dilemma. And Dan, one of the things that I was reading in a lot about um, the, your history and the company history is that right from the get-go, a lot of your products were made in China. So, well, I owned a factory in China. Yeah. Exactly. So, how how does that work when you're kind of explaining some of the China dilemma, but then at the same time you're you're part of that China dilemma in a All sense? All right. Well, let me let me. Uh, I have, if nothing else, I'm not. Uh, you can't say I'm not opinionated. Okay. <laughs> uh, and and let me let me. Uh, I was not. Let me just amplify on my thinking on bringing stuff in from China. I'm not against doing that. You know, knock themselves out. My my problem is a is a level playing field. I'm not against products made in China. Uh, you know, I uh, uh, what I don't like is I have to play by one set of rules. I have to import. I have to pay tariffs. I have to pay duty. I have to have insurance. I have to I have to have FCC, CE approval. I have to do all these things. I got to play by all these rules and absorb all these expenses. And um, in order to sell my, my goods legally in the U.S. OK. Yeah. And there's a loophole which is just the right price to bring in all of this stuff from China. And I'm not talking just electronics or, or, or DAX and cheap DAX and cheap tube amps. And, but, you know, it's clothing. It's you name the thing, right, with absolutely no regulation on it. Yeah. And, and I've, I'm annoyed by that. And I'm not annoyed by the Chinese because they're doing what any smart business person would do. They're taking advantage of the, of the opportunities in the system. So I'm not, I'm not dissing on the Chinese. You know, I spent many, many years working in China and I like the Chinese people. I love the Chinese people. I have a lot of good friends there and I still have deep relationships as does Emotiva in China. Uh, and so I'm not anti Chinese. What I am is, um, I guess I don't like having, um, uh, you know, I don't like unfair playing fields and I don't like deceptive sales practices. So as an OEM builder, you know, I, I was a partner in a factory in mainland China, Taiwan ownership, mainland Chinese uh, uh, factory, a uh, mainland China factory in, in Dongguan province. OK. And uh, I had all these high end guys I was building for and they were all going, oh, now, can you not put the made in China label on here? <laughs> I go, well, dude, it's made in China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But can you just make it like a little sticker I can take off and then I can pretend that it's made by elves up in the Pacific Northwest or whatever? And I said, yeah, dude, that's. You know, that's not that's not ethical and that's not fair. I won't do that. You know what you do with the product once you receive it, I can't control. But I'm not going to play this game with you. You know, if you if you want to do it on your own and you want to lie to your customers and have deceptive trade practices, you know, that's up to you. And 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 uh, you can suffer the consequences of that. But, you know, I would go to to, to factories and see very well-known products made, you know, with deceptive uh, country of origin markings on them are inappropriate, illegal. I, I don't want to, you know, I mean, that's what they are. Illegal country of origin markings. And the reason they got away with it, they just hadn't had a, a customs audit yet. Okay. Huh. And, um, and I would, you know, I would tell my friends who were importing, I said, be sure to mark your products correctly. Cause if you get caught by customs, if they happen to do a spot inspection or somebody complains, you know, you're going to lose a container of goods. So, uh, going back to Emotiva, all these are just little side shows. Uh, we were, I owned a factory uh, in, I was a partner, I don't, didn't own it, I was a partner in it. And I you know, did all the product development, sales, marketing, and customer support for all of our clients worldwide. And when I started Emotiva, I started building products in the factory that I owned because when I was off the convenient, you know. Mm -hmm. And 
and you can build incredibly high quality products in China. I mean, look at your iPhone. Okay. Look at, look at some of the beautiful products coming out of China. Yeah. I used to love getting emails from guys going, I'm not going to be able to buy any more of your Chinese crap sent from my iPhone, you know? And, <laughs> you know, you, you go, I go, come on, man, grow up. This is the world. I mean, China is an essential player in the world's electronic industry. You cannot build audio gear. Uh, without China now. Now, when I grew up as a kid, you didn't need China at all, but we've given up all of our manufacturing capabilities in all these core areas and China took up the slack and don't even, that, that's a whole nother podcast about the exodus to China. Don't get me started on that because I witnessed that firsthand when everybody left China, uh, left the US to go to China and they act like the Chinese did something bad to us and we willingly sold the store as a yeah. country, as a nation, manufacturers. Give me I was cheaper a, prices right now. Look, at I was an OEM builder in Southern California building stuff in Valencia, okay? And all my customers bailed to China because China would fly them in their business class. They'd give them free tooling on their products if they moved them there. They would give them 120-day terms to pay. When these guys had terrible credit, they couldn't get arrested in the States. But the Chinese said, no problem. You want terms? We'll give you terms. Here, well, let me fly your engineers out, you know, uh, business class and put them in five-star hotels. And these guys are like going, this is this rocks, man. I'm a rock yeah. star here. I can't, I'm, 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 I'm driving a Ford Pino uh, at work, but when I come to China, you know, they're treating me like a king. Well, they're just doing a, a Vulcan mind melt. They're just doing a, a knowledge transfer, right? And, yeah. and they, they gave America 10, 20% off. And all these companies that had a bunch of engineers that were expensive and cantankerous and opinionated, they could not wait to fire those guys and get some Chinese guys for 10%. Of the price, right? Or free, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I witnessed it. They just all ran out the door and, and because they were chasing easy profits, less complex business, lower costs to them. And so all these people that sit there and go, you know, oh, you know, wave the flag and say, oh, made in, made in America. Yeah. But all those same guys, when they go to uh, to the store, they don't care where it's made. They want the best price. 100%. Yeah. The, Walmart's these, a great example of that, by the way. Do you remember when you go to Walmart and there was an American flag on all these products made in USA made, and then all yeah. of a sudden that stopped one day, you know, because yeah. these, all these, yeah, don't get me going now. I'm not trying to act like an angry old man, but I find it ironic that the guys said this and waved the flag and they want union jobs. They want America, good American jobs. When they go spend their money, where do they spend their money? On what's economically advantageous to them. They don't care where it came from because they go, I got to look out for my family. And, you know, this TV here made in China is better than this TV made in uh, where XYZ. Well, they don't make a TV in the US, but they're all voting with their walls. I'm wearing New Balance tennis shoes. They're made in the USA. They're oh, twice yeah? as, no they're, way. Yeah, but they're twice as much as the Chinese ones, but they're bad boys. And I like That's the fact crazy. that I'm wearing these tennis shoes because I didn't know you could get a tennis shoe in the USA. I, I, I had no idea that there was any manufacturing textile wise or yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe well, advanced Alan, textile. Alan Edmonds shoes, you know, are really good shoes. They're made in the US. And, <laughs> and these New Balance tennis shoes, they say USA on them, a little flag on them. So I'm going to give you a pitch. Go buy some New Balance USA <laughs> tennis shoes. And, and they're really comfortable, by the way. So anyway, um, so I'm not going to demonize the Chinese because... American companies had a choice to make. When I grew up in the 60s and 70s, I could build electronics and I could source everything 100%, virtually 100% made in the USA. 
connectors, PC boards, transformers, semiconductors. Well, maybe they were made in Singapore, but I mean, there were TI was an American company, you know, national yeah. the American fab on all these things. Right. You know, I mean, you could get everything done in the States when I grew up and in my lifetime, it's gone from being able to build things here, metalwork. I mean, whatever you want to done, you could get, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and I could ride my 10 speed and get an entire product made in the San Fernando Valley, everything, painting, screening, magnetics, PC boards, components, where do you want to go? I mean, it was all there and we, we've given it all up as a nation. We have helped the Chinese and the Taiwanese and the Filipinos and, and name the Singaporeans, name all the countries we've outsourced all of our capabilities to willingly yeah. and happily for short term profit. Now, with that in mind, just thinking that through. Some of your products are still made in China, but some of the products are made in the United States. Yes, of course. And it seems like you're not opposed to products being made in China. Uh, the quality is there. So we could disassociate the idea of made in China with poor quality. You could have stuff made anywhere and it'd be great and stuff made anywhere and it'd be terrible. Yeah. Well, some of the worst made products that you can go buy today are made in the U.S. because they're not finished well. They're poorly put together. I mean, every once in a while I get a piece of stuff and I go, oh, look at this. It's made in the U.S. That's because it's rough. It's not well tooled. And then there's other beautiful stuff made in the U.S., but it's expensive usually. So you can pay for whatever level of quality you want in China. OK, witness your iPhone. OK, yeah. which is one of the most remarkably built beautifully engineered tolerances are insane insane okay yeah. and and you know the chinese have a whole whole lot to do with that yeah. okay they 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 have they're capable of remarkable workmanship yeah if you have the budget and are willing to spend the money there's some very very i won't say the brand because i don't want to be a an an a hole there's an very very highly respected loudspeaker line that's made out of aluminum very, very high end. And I have been to the factory in China that's making all those parts for them. Extremely expensive, high end, beautiful speakers made out of aluminum. And I've watched the milling stations, the, the multi-axis milling stations, making all the parts, graining the, the, the aluminum, doing all the processing on it. You know, I mean, they're capable of phenomenal work. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not going to uh, diss on the Chinese. So our company, let me just tell you about Emotiva. So when I started Emotiva, I had this factory and I was building my stuff there and I was, I didn't make any bones about it. I said, yeah, it's designed by us and built in China and that's grow up because yeah. that's how you build electronics at some kind of price that you can make them work. Okay. And if you're, if you're doing the assembly in the U S the reality is half the parts are coming from China or more because that's where the global supply is for connectors, PC boards, uh, you know, a lot of your popcorn semi uh, components, you know, R's and C's and a lot of uh, the lower end semiconductors. Uh, now, yeah, high end stuff, it'll be fab someplace else. But I'm talking about, you know, if you want to get a set of output terminals and input jacks and and controls and switches and, and our resistors and capacitors and inductors, all, most of that stuff's all coming from China, you know. You go try to get metalwork fabricate or, or get get stuff anodized in the USA. It's almost impossible. 
the Chinese do incredible black anodize. <laughs> I mean, they well, got, I mean, it's yeah. not that it's impossible in small batches. It's when it scales. Is that, is that correct? It's like the, the ability to do that at any level of scale is what really just completely grinds. Well, and, and, and certain processes are tough to do in the U.S. You, it's really right. tough to get. Like if you look at uh, the, there's a, again, I won't say brands, but there's a, a, a well-known USA made brand, a U.S. assembled brand. That does uh, that does nice looking chassis, and and they're a U.S. based company, but they powder coat their their chassis because they can't get anodizing done. So mm-hmm. they powder coat their metal. Looks really beautiful, but you can powder coat in the U.S. pretty economically, but you can't do a line grain black anodized finish. It's extremely tough. Nobody can do good blacks here. They they, they can't. The, the 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 process that the chemistry for that is almost impossible to get done in the U.S. You know, you can do hard anodized and some of the other. The less pretty anodizings, but anyway, I'm again bouncing around. So, when I started Emotiva, I was a partner in this company. It was a natural progression for me. And the reality is, whether guys want to say it or not, that's where the supply chain is for oh. audio gear, in particular electronics and audio gear. You know, and loudspeakers and loudspeaker cabinets, and you go on and on because all the capability in the U.S. the bulk of it has been given up. Uh, they've closed those factories. They've shut those guys down. And if you want to have a cabinet made or get a driver made, I mean, there's there are exceptions, obviously outliers, but yeah. the the bulk of the market is in China, you know, and to a lesser extent, some of the outlying Asian territories. Um, so that's how Emotiva started. So now our entry level products are designed by us and built in China. Our high end products, our X series amplifiers, our processors. Um, and our new stereo preamp that's coming out the first year. We have a lot of new products coming out. Those are actually designed by us, and they're, the boards are stuffed here in the U.S. They're built in Arizona, okay? But uh, the parts are coming from all over the world, and a lot of those parts are from China. You know, that's yeah. just, that's the supply chain. But we're building them here as much as we can, and we've, we've made a concerted effort to bring more and more of our manufacturing to the U.S. wherever possible. But it's really difficult. I've been trying to find a loudspeaker cabinet company in the U.S., you know, for five years. And I, I mean, I just I can't get anybody to make a speaker cabinet that looks right and is priced at some kind of point that it works for us economically. So um, I believe that there's a road back for U.S. manufacturing. It's going to be long and hard. If you want to do ultra high end manufacturing and cost is not an object, you can do it here in the U.S., but you're yeah. not going to build a $499 integrated in the U.S. without a lot of, you know, without a lot of help from from Asian suppliers, you know? Interesting. Now, there, there's this, and maybe it's a preconception in the, the entire hi-fi space, or maybe it's just me. I have this preconception of hi-fi being expensive, right? So hi-fi, like my brain immediately goes to like, oh, if I want the best quality stuff, my, my price just skyrockets. The people well, that buy your stuff, is that a struggle? You have to explain not why something is so expensive, which some of the other companies have to do, but you have to explain why something is less expensive. Well, my, 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 my feeling is like, why are they so expensive? Right? No. Look at, you know, it's, it's the vast majority of these products, you know, I, I looked at a pair of, there's a pair of, Amplifiers reviewed in, a, in one of the high-end magazines. It's a pair of monoblocks, and they're beautiful, but they're f- like forty-five grand a pair, fifty grand a pair. You know, I'm like, going, holy cow, man, that's a nice car. You know, yeah. that's a whole nice system for fifty grand. 
yeah. for a pair of amplifiers, and I'm I'm doing what I call the popcorn dance. I'm looking inside the box. I'm going, uh, da, 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 da. you know, I see about five grand. You know, I don't see fifty grand, but you know, I'm a cynic. You know, I mean, I'm a realist, but it, it, it's crazy. So, why does Emotiva exist? I can build at whatever point in the price uh, categories I want to. I mean, I made a conscious decision to build a value brand with Emotiva because when I grew up. The excitement in hi-fi was not just how much money do you have and just pouring money on it. You know, it was like, can I build hi-fi gear that sounds like the big boys, but is priced by something at a price that an average guy can afford to get it and use it. And then the quality is there and the durability is there and the, and you know, the, not only the sound quality, but the build quality is there. And it's priced at a point that you don't have to mortgage your house to own one of these things. And that's more challenging to do it that way than it is to just put a fire out with $100 bills. You know, I mean, it's really exciting to build to cost because it takes discipline, it takes creativity, and it takes focus to do that. It's much more challenging to build a low-priced, high-performance product than a high-performance, high-priced product. I mean, anybody can throw enough money on something to make it look good and sound good you know, by and large, I mean, they still remarkably imagine they should ruin things with lots of money, but by and large, you know, there's a correlation. So Emotiva, what we've done is we have this very lean markup model that I've shown you. And then what we do then is we, to try to keep our costs down further, we build a lot of product, way more product than people understand in terms of volume, which gets our prices down. And then we do everything in a modular fashion. So like take our X series amplifiers, one chassis, two power supplies and three modules, I'm making almost 40 products with it. You can and interchange. I, yeah. So I'm buying chassis by the thousands and thousands and thousands. I'm buying modules by the tens of thousands. You know, so my costs go down because I'm hitting critical mass where I'm actually, it's not a cottage industry where I'm building 10 of this and 20 of that. And I'm building thousands and thousands of pieces of the same thing. So my costs go way down. You know, it, it, oh, it's a numbers game. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you, you once you hit a certain price point, you, your, your cost can go down by 30, 40, 50 percent if you can get enough critical volume moving. So I make big POs. I release them all. And I'm and I'm building this modular architecture that allows me to really increase the apparent value of the product, because instead of keeping the profit and getting more more margin for our company, I keep driving the prices down and keeping the prices as low as I can. Like my accountant goes, you need to raise the prices. I go, no, we need to lower our manufacturing costs. We got to, we got to be smarter and lower our cost. You know, I was talking to another brand that was, uh, they, I got involved with another company that was having some financial issues and they said, we got to raise our prices. I said, no, dude, do not raise your prices, lower your costs, lower your costs. Be creative. Think about how I can reduce my product cost to avoid raising the price. It's easy to raise prices. It's hard to be smarter. And I mean, when I say lower cost, lower overhead, lower you know, your, your supply, get, get your supply chain leaned out, buy smarter, buy more strategically, and then you can keep your product cost down. Then there is an interesting snippet, and I'm going to interject here just for a second because it, it's so fascinating the way that you're describing this. In one of the interviews, and I think this was an interview, I think it was one that Dennis Berger did. So our producer did with you a few years back. And you said something along the lines of um, when labor is cheap, you can essentially design products that can go together in a, 
a painful way, essentially. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a way that to take it apart is nearly impossible. Now, everything that you're just describing, the design of the product is such that you can continue to take it apart. And I'm I'm sure this plays into your strategy as, as a company too, but that process might be more expensive to design the product, but then it goes to less labor to assemble it and then potentially disassemble right. it down the road. I, I, if you came out here, I, if you give me 30 minutes, I will have you building amplifiers with no experience. Our amplifiers can be built. I mean, my not six hundred screws and tapes and glue uh, and all uh, that. My, my six year old grandson, I could teach him to assemble amplifiers in an hour. You know, he'd probably be pretty good at it too. He's pretty mechanical. <laughs> but I'm just saying, we've designed our products to just fall together, and they're super easy to build. They're super easy to configure and service. Service. I used to have six guys in my service department. Because it took so long to work on the products because they were so complex to take apart to get to the part that was bad. Uh, Simple, a, a small issue with the product. You know, you spend an hour taking it apart to get to the part to fix it, but and then put it all back together. Uh, I mean, I got, I've got one guy in my service department and we fix products in a day or two of arrival. Okay. One guy from six guys. And I've been in business for 20 years now and I've got... I mean, I don't know how many, how many hundreds of thousands of amplifiers in the field right now, but where I do all of my service with one guy. Um, so I guess here's a, a line of thinking. We're talking about cutting costs um, with your products. Is labor the number one cost in manufacturing a product? No, no, no. The components are the overriding cost. I mean, they're the, and the more expensive the product, obviously, the less the labor matters, you know. Let me explain. When I say cut costs, I'm saying improve efficiency by using careful design, modular construction, um, design the product so that instead of having, you know, uh, you want to build 20 different amps, you don't need 20 different chassis, 20 different power supplies, 20 different... You know, you you are you're you're building it, and it's an economy of scale, and it's a, you're simplifying the mechanical and design process, and, and down to the point that it takes a lot less effort and labor to build a given product. You know, um, our our company keeps growing, but our our workforce is you know we're there's about thirty people here in uh, Nashville. Okay. I've got a design team in Canada and we've got some other guys that, that remotely work engineer guys, you know, uh, that are out in California and, and New York. And I've got a full time Chinese employee. And uh, but the core group here is about 30 people. And um, we have been able to over time, I pay my people more. I, we pay very well. We have, like I said earlier, we have full benefits. We take care of it. We don't you know, have very, very low turnover here. But what I've done is by making the company run more efficiently, and I say I, I mean the team, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm just a cheerleader. They're the people here, I've got really talented people that have implemented the programs and done the, the heavy lifting for it. But by making the company lean and making everything from our accounting to our, our you know, everything with the way the, the orders are booked, the way they're pulled, the way, the way everything runs, manufacturing, I mean... It just, it just, the stuff just falls together. You know, I don't need a huge team. I don't need a, I don't need a bunch of people like toiling away, but you know, I've, I've got it down so that the people that work here are doing a high value work and I can afford to pay them very, very well for what they do because I don't need a million of them. I need a handful of really good people and we've designed the products so that 
They don't have a lot of wasted labor and energy to put them together and service them. So where I had five guys in the service, five or six, I now have one and he's not sweating it. He's just chugging along doing it because when the products come in, number one, they don't fail that much. And when they do fail, they're so easy and quick to service that they're in and out in a minute. You know, you pull a module, you put a new one in, done, get out of here, right? Wipe it off, put in the box, go. And this makes things work really efficiently. So um, it makes everybody happy because everybody's well-paid. They're not overworked. They're not, it's not drudgery in terms of the kind of work they have to do. And it's, and it's, it's not frustrating work, if you know what I mean. It's uh, like, hey, when, when things go together nice, it's a joy to build things when they just, oh, wow, this just falls together. It's, it's nice. And yeah, I got to credit Lonnie and Damon and Ray and my engineering group with building products that just are just super simple to work on. And, and, and they're, everything's modular and, and, and enhanceable too. our processors and things like that. So, you know, we don't build disposable products. You can modify them. You can enhance them. And we don't, even though we're affordable, we're not disposable, which I think is a, a nice uh, philosophy too. You know, I hate spending a bunch of money on something to be told that, oh, well, because the HDMI standard changed again, that that thing you just spent three or four grand on is a paperweight. You know, that really leaves a bad taste in people's mouths when they've made a big investment. And that's a lot of money. I don't even know, you know, when you spend three or four or $5,000 on something to be told that two years later, it's no longer working because instead of being HDMI 1.3, it's not a 1.4, 1.4 to 2.0 or 2.1, whatever. You know, that, that whole box that's got all this good stuff in it is worthless because of one change in a subsystem, right? And you can't upgrade that subsystem, sorry. It's like when you buy a car now, you know, the thing that people love about Teslas is they keep upgrading the software. Sure. It's like a phone, it keeps getting enhanced. Well, your gear needs to be that way too. This old philosophy of, well, that's what it is. Sorry, dude, you know, uh, yeah, that just doesn't fly in my mind. You've gotta be, uh, you've gotta respect your customers. We, you know, that's another thing we talk about, you know, about the pricing, the business model, the 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 whole thing is about respecting your customers and offering them um, value for dollar and then being there to support them and take care of them and carry them through as as a technology evolves and, and the world moves forward to be there with them and show them respect and not just disregard their their loyalty and their and their money. And these are big purchases for people. And so I hate when somebody says, yeah, sorry, man, we'll just have to throw it away, you know. But I just bought the yeah. I bought an air conditioner in my building here, a a, a a huge air conditioner, and it cost like thirty grand, and it had a twelve month warranty. And the coil went out, and they said, "Now we're just going to have to put a new one in." I said, "This thing's the size of a car. I'm not going to throw it away because of a bad coil. I mean, all the other stuff's good, but there I am. We'll just replace." It. I no 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I, I I'm going to resist, respectfully resist. You know, I don't like disposable mentality. You know, with things. You know. So I, I think from our entire conversation, what I've taken away from this is, one, you have a deep passion for not only just audio, music, hi-fi, but also technology. Um, and two, you have, um, I'm going to call it a crusade that you're on <laughs> to make hi-fi or electronics in general, by the sounds of it, more inclusive as opposed to um, kind of like pushing it to the upper echelons of things when it comes to price or whatever it may be. Um, would would you agree with that? Would you say that like, look at man? I, if, if you had to say what your personal crusade was, what is it? I don't like 
I, I don't like to gouge people. I don't like to take advantage of people. I don't like to be, have that happen to me. And I don't like people that think that they're too good for the next guy. I hate this high end snobby attitude in life, whether it's you walk in to buy a watch, whether you're doing the Ferrari dealership and they, you know, they've got to mistreat you to, you know, just, it, you know, I don't like that. You know, it, uh, you should respect your customers, respect their money and, uh, and, and, you know, respect your, your employees and, and everybody around you. And, um, I hate that kind of elitist kind of um, mentality in a lot of these circles. I we did a, we did a show down in Orange County, a hi-fi show down in Orange County, and they were such a bunch of uh, excuse me, they were a bunch of dicks, you know, because they all got their little Ferraris out front and their exotic cars, and they're drinking their their wine. I got a lot of wine. I got I got a thousand bottles of wine at home. I have lots of money. I mean, I'm a capitalist. Dennis will hate this, but I am, and uh, you know. But, you know, I don't just throw my money away and I don't judge people by what they have or don't have. And I don't like to take I don't want to waste my money. I don't want to waste my clients money. And I don't like the elitism that takes place in many of these places. You know, you walk into some hi-fi stores. I'm a I'm a think I'm a customer, right? I'm a, I'm the I'm a prime customer. And you walk into some of these hi-fi shops. And they don't even talk to you. They don't even act like they've seen you. And I'm like, sometimes I'm there to actually buy something, right? I want to, you know, check something out, and maybe buy it. And it's like you walk in a place, and they they're too good for you. They don't want to talk to you. They, you know, well, uh, you know, I don't know what kind of shoes are you wearing. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, made like, in America, New Balance. Well, I'm, wearing my, yeah, I'm wearing my New Balance <laughs> shoes today. But you know, I like I like it to be an inclusive hobby that brings everybody in to the to music and movies and technology. And I, I love, I love this um, part of the business. It's a real, it's a real pleasure to bring joy into people's lives, to bring happiness in their lives. It's a real privilege. And I, I want to take as many people along on that, on that crew, on that cruise with me as possible. I really want to open up the hobby and the enjoyment of music and cinema to as many people as possible and make as it accessible as possible. That's my crusade, I guess, Jordan, is I want to have as many people experience the high end without all the BS as possible. And also, you know, people have a lot of things to do with their money today. They got kids to worry about. They got schooling. They got housing. They got inflation. So I, I don't want to be part of that problem. I want to make, I'm like, wow, look what I got at Emotiva. What a deal. How do they do it? It's such a, it's such a great product. And it, and it and it's so affordable and so reasonable. And then I call them up for service and they treat me like I just bought a Rolls Royce. And that's what I want to be known as. Right. You know, so if, if that makes me the antichrist of high end audio, then so be it. I can live with that. If that's what I, my legacy is, I can live with that. You know, <laughs> yeah, not a problem. That's I'll accept awesome. that. Now, the final question that we like to ask all the people that come on the podcast if you were sitting down and enjoying music for the pure enjoyment, what would you put on? What is the soundtrack to your life? Well, when they bury me, it's going to be Van Morrison. Great okay. songs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, the stuff, no, no teacher, no method, no guru, uh, you know, Avalon sunset that those albums are amazing. You know, um, if I'm sitting in the backyard, uh, drinking wine with, with Kathy, looking out over the, over the the trees and stuff, you know, I got a little, a little upper balcony. I, I gotta have you know Steely Dan on. I gotta have 
uh, Mark Knopfler. You know, I've, I've, I've got a song for every mood. I listen to all kinds of music from jazz to classical to to, to, you know, to 70s and 80s pop, you know. And th this morning, Kathy was listening to the Monkees. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I come in there, you know, and, I, and uh, it, she, she, like they were she was playing some deep tracks by the Monkees. I go, you know, they were pretty, uh, pretty good songwriters. Some of the stuff you never heard on the radio, they were actually good songs. So we, you know, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I've got a real thing for Mark Knopfler and, 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 uh, and uh, I really, really love Van Morrison. And uh, and of course, I grew up in the the 80s and the 70s and smoked a lot of dirt weed when I was a kid. So I had to be a Steely Dan guy. That's all. L, that's all L.A. rock. You know, the all the all the uh, it's all referencing the that fast California life that I grew up in, you know, on the periphery of. So I, I relate to it, you know. I love it. That sounds awesome. I'm gonna add them to my playlist. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna give some more of those uh, a listen. And I uh, like I like Pink Floyd a lot too. Oh man, Pink yeah. Floyd, Roger Waters is just yeah. absolutely incredible. Well, he, I don't know that I agree with Roger Waters so wow. on a lot of things, but God musically damn it, incredible. Is he, is he talented? Good lord. That's yeah. it. Um, yeah. If people want to learn more about uh, you or, or kind of what's going on uh, with your company or companies, I should say, because there's there's uh, more than one, I think. Well, the, the the one is just an engineering company. So it's Emotiva is uh, is the is the company Emotiva.com. And, uh, you know, just uh, as a little plug, I don't know how far your your podcast reaches. We'll be at the Toronto Audio Show next week. Uh, which Canada. is a which is a wonderful event, and then they also have the Montreal show. Um, the same group hosts that. We'll be both of those shows, and I'll be in Warsaw, Poland, at the uh, at the at the Poland uh, audio show, which is a fantastic town. God, I love Poland. And uh, come see us at Emotiva. We got a whole new thing. Let's see what's exciting at Emotiva. Let me give you a plug. We have our 8K processor upgrade program happening at the first of the year. Okay, so all of our current owners, talking about modular, will be able to upgrade to 8K with an incredibly new operating system and a hugely enhanced uh, feature set on our processors. Both our new processors and all the old ones can be upgraded to that standard for a very nominal fee, and that'll be announced in January. And so that's a big, exciting thing. You know, our AVRs are selling really well. Uh, the, the MR1, MR1L, those have been a huge hit for us, which are also upgradable to 8K. Uh, uh, and then we have, uh, you know, uh, a brand new line of speakers that are coming out, uh, and uh, we'll be showing those uh, probably before the new year. They're all done and in production now, new Airmotive line. So lots of stuff happening here. I mean, it's just, it's a, we have a big tranche of products coming out to the new year. Oh, that's awesome. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it was great chatting with you, and I'm sure we're going to be chatting uh, again in the future. You may have to go into therapy. Your, 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 your listeners maybe have to go into therapy. Go. I, I just had an experience. This crazy guy uh, in Nashville. I don't know what he's talking about. But hey, I, it's a great hobby, and I feel very strongly about it. And I love music and people and 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 cinema, and it's just a great business. You bring so much happiness to people, and it's. Uh, it's a wonderful business, and I, I hope more young people get involved in it. And come out and see us, man. We'd love to have you. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. All, right. All the My best. My pleasure, brother. Take care. Say hi to Dennis from Museum Jordan. Absolutely. Adios.